0: Good morning, Westchester. I, uh, before we begin, I want to bring you greetings from a church you probably don't know of and a pastor who I hope you know well. The church is Redeemed Life Center, and their pastor is our brother Harry Nshorian Gabo, who, as you may remember, left here several months ago to receive a call to be their pastor. And last night, I had the pleasure of going to his ordination service to be installed as senior pastor. And it was a passing of the baton. It was a very special and sweet uh, worship service. And so Harry, uh, his wife, Beatrice, his sister, Miombe and his father, uh, Lazur send their warm greetings. His father got up and shared briefly uh, and talked about Westchester and he said, I did not, uh, this is through a translator, uh, because my Swahili's a bit rusty. Um, He said, I did not understand the language they spoke, but the Spirit of God was in them, and they were a very sweet church to be a part of. And that's a pretty great affirmation for you guys as a congregation. I... uh, um, when someone who, who doesn't even really know our language at all has that experience, I think that's, that says a lot about you as a congregation, and, uh, and I echo that sentiment as someone who never understands what you say myself. So, um, no, let's pray. Father, we thank you for the partnership we can have with the body of Christ that extends far beyond our walls. And Lord, we thank you that in our weakness that you would choose to abide with us and that you would make it possible for us to abide with you. Lord, I pray that through the text this morning we would not lose sight of the fact that you are a gracious God who approaches us in our weakness. And we would not lose sight of the fact that you are a holy God who makes it possible for us to enter your presence. Pray that you would help us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. As Christians, we believe we are never alone, right? We always we, we believe that God is always with us, that he never leaves us or forsakes us. The, the Great Commission ends with Jesus promising, and surely I will be with you always to the end of the age. Psalm 139, a psalm that, that's near and dear to a whole lot of us, poetically describes God's spirit being with us through the heights Of life and all its glories and the depths of loneliness and all the fear that can come with this life that God's Spirit is with us in all of those am I the only one who has some moments where it's really easy to believe that God's presence is with me and almost take it for granted sometimes and then have other moments where I feel utterly alone. And yet I find that it's those moments where I feel completely alone, that I am in the greatest need of that doctrine that teaches me that God is always with me. That in the midst of that loneliness is when I am in the greatest need to be reminded that God is with me. I don't think I'm alone in that. I think... That's a pretty common experience for the Christian. The circumstances that bring on these seasons can vary. But the fear of facing something insurmountable isolates us. It makes the challenge of of getting out of it so terrifying, it it nearly paralyzes us. And maybe those seasons come with, with illness... Uncertainty of job, fear for our children or grandchildren, discontentment with a relationship. This morning, the text before us, Judges 6, calls us specifically to focus on that feeling in the face of our sin and the consequences of our sin. We can't sugarcoat it and call it anything else. And yes, there are a whole lot of seasons for a whole lot of reasons that lead us to despair. But our sin is certainly one of them. I've screwed up. I've messed up. I I can never get past this. Hebrews describes our sin as, as something that so easily entangles us as we try to run the race for the Lord. It may be what you're facing feels like a daily or even hourly struggle with sin. Maybe you're living in consequences that you wish you could undo that seem to go on forever forever. And maybe you're watching a loved one get in way over their head following the course of this world and following the passion of their flesh. I want you to know this morning that God is with you. And God being with you is not dependent on your absolute confidence that He is with you. Let me say that again. God's presence with you is not fully dependent on your absolute confidence that he is with you. This morning we're in Judges 6. This is the call of Gideon. This is a famous passage in Judges. Gideon is is one of these really fun stories to tell. At least the first two-thirds of it are pretty fun. The last gets pretty dark. But this call, this is we know about this call. This is Gideon putting his fleece before the Lord. God, are you sure? God, are you sure? God, are you is this really gonna happen? As we go through Judges 6, I want to see that we confidently trust in the Lord, who graciously gives us his unique deliverance, and it's a deliverance that exposes our limits. Let's let's read this first paragraph. Verse 6 verses of Gideon 6. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the reader of Judges by this time is saying, "Yes, I get it." They and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian 7 years. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel. And because Of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves dens, the dens that are in the mountains, and the caves and the strongholds. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. They would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel, no sheep or ox or donkey for they would come up with their livestock and their tents and they would come like locusts in number both they and their camels could not be counted so that they laid waste to the land as they came in and Israel was brought very low because of Midian and the people of Israel cried out to help cried out for help to the Lord Israel is once again in this horribly desperate situation they don't seem to learn, you know. At this point in the book of Judges, if you, for those of you who love math, we're over two hundred years into the book of Judges now. Think about that in terms of U.S. history. Back to eighteen twenty-three, and all that's happened between now and then. They, they, to give us perspective, there are two hundred years in the cycle is showing no signs of slowing up. It only continues. Now this time, it doesn't even take a, a full generation. 40 years of peace that they had. Which means people that were young experiencing the oppression from the Canaanites are now experiencing it again from the Midianites. Much later in life. A generation who experienced the downfall and freedom and glory of the Lord is now in the downfall again. But now the author gives us a much more detailed picture of the suffering. This is a dire situation. Imagine you're a farmer. All your food for the year is either grown in your land or butchered from your field. And that... That's it. There's no Costco. Terrifying. And you plant your crops, and like locusts, these Midianites and Amalekites and people from the east come in with their camels, and while your crops are growing, they graze their livestock on your crops that are growing. They never even get a chance to produce a yield. And so the people of Israel are driven to the hills where they dig out dens and caves to grow their crops secretly. It is not hard to imagine there's great starvation for families. The oppression every year now, seven years. So well, maybe next year we can grow crops. We have enough to get us through if we ration. And then the next year it's eaten again. And then what do you do? And seeing their physical limits, they cry out to God, and they cry out to God who exposes their spiritual limits. Let's read on, verse 7. When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel. And he said to them, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt. I brought you out of the house of slavery, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. Isn't this interesting? They cry out for help, and the first help that God gives is a prophet to give them the word of the Lord. They were spiritually limited. They didn't need an immediate victory over Midianite and its allies. What they needed was a spiritual revival within their hearts. They needed a change of worship. They had gone on. They had forgotten Who God is, the God who freed them out of Israel or Egypt, the God who delivered them from from slavery, delivered them from the hand of their oppression, the God who gave them this land. The Israelites needed to realize it wasn't their ancestors who secured the land for them. It wasn't their ancestors didn't worship God so much that they didn't need to. We need to know the same. Our ancestors haven't accomplished anything for our sanctification. Yes, we stand on the shoulders of theological giants. We benefit from their learning. But their holiness does not become our holiness. Their worship does not cover our idolatry. Their love of God does not surpass and make room for our apathy. We need to walk with the Lord. These people in this time, they were not made holy because there was a great worship service 300 years before they were born. They weren't made holy because the people had crossed the Jordan River on dry ground. They they were made holy because of what God was doing actively in them that day, if they were willing to participate in his worship and follow his law. It was God who would make them holy. We can't graduate from the saving, sanctifying work of God to a point where we're done and then we can just kick up our feet spiritually. We can't afford to walk away from him. It's interesting, they cry out for help. God, give us crops. God, give us land that we can grow the food on. God, give us all these things. God, help us. My children are starving. God, I have no money left. I have nowhere to plant the seeds that I have. You know, oftentimes when we cry out to God, we mistake his answer for silence, because his answer is so far removed from our expectation of his answer. But the real problem here is not the Midianite occupation, it's their sin. Dale Ralph Davis says this, understanding God's way of holiness is more important than the absence of pain. We may want out of a bind, whereas God wants to see us Um, God wants to see us out of our idolatry. God means to instruct us, not pacify us. We should not miss the kindness of God in all this. And pay attention to this last sentence. One of the kindest things God does for us is to bring us under the criticism of his word to expose the reasons of our helplessness and misery. A real problem in life, their real problem in this in Judges 6, is not what makes us uncomfortable. Our real problem is what in us makes God uncomfortable. What in my daily routine, what In my view of my possessions, what in my view of the future, what in my view of fill-in-the-blank, my marriage, my children, my sex life, what in my view of my material wealth makes God uncomfortable? I need to deal with those things. And even in their spiritual amnesia, God is with them. God sends a prophet to them. He sends them not just discipline, but a reminder of the captivity their forefathers had. A reminder that he is the one who delivers. So he exposes our limits, and he approaches our weakness. Here we come to this this familiar scene Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Orpha, which belonged to Joash the Abizarite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. So Gideon, son of Joash, has found a place where he can grow wheat, where their livestock can't come up and eat it, and he's found a winepress where he can beat it out so no clouds of chaff will be seen. It'll just, it'll just kind of disperse more quietly. He is hiding. He's living in fear. He's acting out his weakness. And the angel of the Lord comes to him. And what, what's great about this story is not what we learn about Gideon as a man who overcame But what we learn about God who approaches a very weak individual. And the angel of the Lord, verse 12, appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And what's great here is the angel of the Lord is not speaking ironically, the Lord views Gideon as a mighty man of valor. Isn't it great when we see the foolishness of the Lord overcoming the wisdom of the world? Gideon said to him, please, sir, if the Lord is with us, then why has all this happened? And where are his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, did not the Lord bring us out of Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us to the hands of Median. And the Lord turned to him and said, go in this might of yours to save Israel from the hand of Midian, do I do not I send you? And he said to him, please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least of my father's house. And the Lord said to him, but I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. And he said to him, if if now I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it is you who speak to me, please do not depart here until I come and bring out a present and set it before you. And he said, I will stay till you return. God is not hung up by human failings in stature. In fact, God likes weakness. I think sometimes we can, we can look out and we can say, well, God will surely use that person. Look how great they are. And then we're surprised at what God can do. And it's like we forget his power is made perfect in weakness. His power is on full display in human weakness. God isn't bothered by our perceived weakness. Instead, he calls us by who he makes us and what he seeks to do through us. Here he calls Gideon, a man hiding his food, a man who says, look, my clan is the least and I'm the runt of the litter. I got nothing I'm the least talented member, the least strong member of my weak and pathetic household. The weakest of the weak. And God calls him mighty warrior, man of valor. Either God's insane or God knows exactly what he's talking about. And God knows things about us that we don't know. And so while we feel estranged, and while we feel alone, and while we feel like we have no hope, God calls us child. God calls us a member of a holy priesthood. God calls us co-heirs with Christ. God's not... So then Gideon... Gideon sits here and he goes, well, if God's with me, then why have all these bad things happened? A question that none of us have ever thought of, right? If God is with me, then why am I hiding wheat in a wine press? God, sure, he did all those things in the past, but he's not doing anything now. God's not bothered by Gideon's questions. Even though Gideon says, basically, well, you did all those things with Moses, why aren't you doing anything now? Now you've just given up on us, God. God doesn't say, all right, Gideon, let me sit down. He doesn't go to his handbook of Christian apologetics to explain to Gideon the sovereignty of God who does things that we don't understand in our finite thinking. He doesn't, go, he doesn't open up the book why, why bad things happen to good people and talk through the ups and downs of that book. No, he doesn't say that. Gideon's going, well, God, you you delivered them, but you haven't delivered us. And God just goes, I'm sending you to do it. What? God, I'm the weakest. No, 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 we're going to do this. You're going to gather Israel. They're going to fight as one man. They're going to defeat the Midianites. I am with you. The God of heaven, I'm with you. Gideon, I'm sending you to do it. Gideon's theology that God is, is a God of used to, is now completely upended. Now his theology has to, his God, his God used to is being confronted with God saying, I am sending you. I am with you. I am sending you. Go out. I am with you. Gideon was settling for a very minute, minuscule view of God. And God's answer is, I'm here. God doesn't shy away. God isn't offended. So Gideon goes, and he goes to get his gift. He prepared a young goat, unleavened cakes, and an ephah of flour. Now keep in mind, this is the same guy that's having to thresh out his wheat in a wine press so no one sees it. So to bring a goat, a couple cakes, and an ephah of flour, this is a pretty big offering. Based on what he would have had. And he prepares it, he sets it before the Lord. The angel of the Lord, verse 21, reached out the tip of the staff in his hand, touched the meat and the unleavened cakes. Fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened cakes. And the angel of the Lord vanished. <whistles> Gideon is not worried about what he's going to have to say to his family when he gets back and they say, hey, where's that goat and those cakes and the flour? We don't have much. Where'd those things go? We needed those. His his worry right now is, I have just encountered the holy God of heaven. Alas, O Lord, for now I've seen the angel of the Lord face to face. And then the Lord said to him, Peace be to you. Do not fear. You shall not die. Gideon built an altar there, and he called it, The Lord is Peace. Think of Gideon's theological journey here. God is the God who used to. God is now saying to him, I'm going to send you. He goes, are you really, God? Let me, I got to see this. I got to feel this out. Sets out his first test before the Lord. The Lord patiently waits for Gideon to get all this stuff. He sees that it's the Lord. And he comes away saying, God is peace. I'm an unworthy person to be in the presence of God. And God would graciously allow me to be. God is the God of peace. And then God gives Gideon, verse 25, a challenge to eliminate the competition. That night the Lord said to him, take your father's bull. Gideon's like, I'm already in hot water over this goat thing. Take your father's bull. And the second bull, seven years old, that's a lot, Pull down the altar of Baal that your father has, and cut down the asherah that is beside it. Here we get a glimpse into Gideon's, Gideon's spirituality. His dad has an altar to Baal and a, a pole to Asherah. Gideon is not this holy saint in Israel, quietly trying to eke out a living under the judgment of God. Gideon is an idolater. His dad is an idolater. And God is saying, if you're going to serve me, you're going to worship me, and you're not going to allow any other kind of worship here, because I, the God of heaven, do not share my spotlight with anyone. So come down, build an altar... Lord your God, on top of the stronghold here with stones laid in due order, take the second bowl offered as a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah that you shall cut down. So Gideon took ten men of his servants. He did as the Lord had told him. But because he was afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it by night. This is a long night. This is a lot of work. Gideon's theology wasn't all that needed corrected. In the midst of the crop scarcity, the devastating impact that it had on the livestock and their families, the people were desperate for fruitfulness. And they had this big felt need for food and fertility. We need our crops to do well. We need our livestock to do well. We've already buried too many children. We need need our, our women to be strong and to be able to provide for our children. And in this felt need for fertility, they cried out for Baal and Asherah to provide it. Our felt needs... When we don't take them to the Lord alone, our felt needs will produce idolatry. I have a need that is so urgent, I can't wait for the God of heaven, so I'm going to go somewhere else. I can't wait for the God of heaven. I am so anxious and urgent for this need to be met that I must take matters into my own hands. And I see the world around me crying out for this kind of solution. And so I'm going to go chase it. This idolatry will just take us by surprise. It'll tear us down. As we seek for worldly solutions to these needs that are just deep within us. And no matter how good it looks, good intent is not an excuse for idolatry. Good intent is not an excuse for bypassing the Lord of heaven for a worldly solution to your problem. So here, God uses the weakest of the weak He tears down. People wake up. Turns out Gideon had a reason to be afraid. They are hot. They are livid. They're coming for blood. Who did this? And they know who did it. Gideon, the son of Joash, has done this thing. The men of the town, verse 30, said to Joash, bring out your son that he may die. For he has broken down the altar of Baal and cut down the Asherah beside it. And Joash who's now lost a goat, a couple of bulls, and his favorite place of worship. He says to him, Will you contend for Baal? Or will you save Baal? Whoever contends for him shall be put to death by morning. If he is a god, let him contend for himself because his altar has been broken down. Therefore, on that day, Gideon was called Jerubbaal, Jerob Baal, I always try to put an extra syllable in there. That is to say, let Baal contend against him because he's broken down his altar. I love the conversion, the seeming conversion of Gideon's dad. The moment his God is destroyed, he's like, well, if my God's as mighty as I thought he was, then he'll take care of Gideon. But if he's not that mighty, then I shouldn't be worshipping him, him anyways. The Lord removes false worship so he can deliver. Baal has been deposed. In your ongoing battle and your struggle, what's the felt need that's tied to that? And is there something that needs to be torn down in your life for you to fully embrace a God's glory alone mindset? What needs to be deposed? What's competing on the throne of your heart? What's competing with Christ? Is there a love of a sin? Is there an idea that you're pursuing? Is there a leader that you're putting too much stock in that's not Jesus, that's not part of the triune Godhead? Are you trusting and hoping in something that needs to be cut down? God will deliver, but he will not share a spotlight. So there's this great moment. Baal and Asher pulls torn down the sacrifice, this realization that maybe Baal's not so great after all. Maybe he's not worthy of my trust. Maybe he's not worthy of my worship. Maybe he's not worthy. And then all the Midianites and Amalekites verse 33, and all the people of the east come together and they crossed over the Jordan and encamped at the valley of Jezreel. It's happening again. And so God comes in a way that is faithfully empathetic because there's been this victory. There's been this great victory, this great moment of spiritual revival it feels and now this great threat is right there again. Are we going to do this for an eighth year? Are we going to lose our crops to their livestock for an eighth year? Are we going to be beaten down and oppressed for an eighth year? God, didn't you send me? God, aren't you with me? And then verse 34, but the spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon and he sounded a trumpet and the Abuzerites were called out to follow him and he sent messengers throughout all Manasseh And they, too, were called to follow him. And they sent messengers to Asher and Zebulun and Naphtali. And they went up to meet him. So here we have this this great moment. Baal's torn down. But, oh, no, the enemy's back. They're encamped. Their livestock is hungry. They're going to beat us up. They're going to take our food again for an eighth time. The Spirit of the Lord comes on Gideon. And he sounds a trumpet. And all, all these people come out. They're getting ready to fight as one man. And then we get to the passage we know Gideon for. God, are you really doing this? Does this sound familiar to you? I went to a workshop. I went to a conference. I listened to a podcast. I had a really neat moment in worship, and I feel so good right now. And then this spiritual problem, your reoccurring sin, whatever it is, it pops up. Or your felt need your loneliness, your angst, your bitterness gets leaned on real hard and you start wanting to go to that old vice. God, I thought it was going to be different this time. God, are you not with me? You know, I've heard different people in different ways. They've tried to make the fleece holy. Gideon sets out the fleece. He goes, all right, God, if you're really doing this, let all the ground be covered with dew and the fleece be dry, and it happens. He goes, okay, God, don't be mad, but I need to do it again the other way, you know, scientific method, God, all that stuff. And God does it. I can say right now, the only times I've done a laying the fleece before the Lord type thing is when I felt very confident of what God wanted me to do but I didn't want to do it. The first major one was whether or not to go into vocational ministry. The other times have been when I've really wanted to hide sin and not deal with it. God in his holiness could have said, Gideon, you've tested me, and I said in my word, you shall not test me, and he could have gotten rid of Gideon and brought in a new leader, but he didn't. God could have done the same thing with me, but he didn't. God knows the weakness of Gideon. And he deals patiently with him in that weakness. We have a Savior who, like God in heaven, almost as they're, they're fully united, is gentle and able to fully empathize with us because he knows our weakness, because he's walked in it. And we have a Savior who does not break the bruised reed, who does not snuff out the smoldering wick. When it comes to facing your enemy, you don't need a fleece. We have no need for a fleece to say, God, are you with me in this? We don't need a fleece because we have a table. We have a table that reminds us every time we come to it that there is nothing that the Lord will not do in order to be with us. And so we come in our weakness and we hear the Lord is with you. Like, but I really screwed up this week. The Lord is with you. But I'm afraid I'll never get through this on my own. But the Lord is with you. But this addiction, the Lord is with you. But my sin is so great. But his blood that was broken, or poured out, and his body that was broken is greater than your sin. He is a good God. He is faithful. He will do it. I'm going to ask those who are helping to serve communion if they would come forward. and Let's pray. Father God, you are so mighty and you are so faithful and we praise you for this love and this gentleness that you continually give us, Lord. We praise you that you are with us that we have the cross and the empty tomb as this undeniable forever stamp that you are going to do what you say you're going to do and that you love us and that you loved us when we were sinners enough to send Christ to die for us. And so, Lord, as we get ready to partake in this communion, would we center our hearts, Lord, help us to center our hearts that you are with us and that you love us And it is not because of how great we are, but completely because of how great you are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.